This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Power Gaming. The Science of Taste. Our modern Dracula movie. And James Jesus Angleton. Where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> Bye, Murder of Crows. <laughs> and get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Reiner Dobbelman asks Ken and Robin, How can I make power gaming fun? Both I and my six-year-old are power gamers. I realize that these days that means people assume we are emotionally the same age, but nevertheless, we have to work with what we've got. <laughs> my question is how to keep dramatic tension in a game in which the player is very, very, very reluctant to accept any setbacks whatsoever, including such symptoms of not being able to control the entire universe, like by rolling. And uh, my son is also a little bit bad at that, too. So I think dramatic tension may be the wrong thing to keep, because obviously if there are never any setbacks, then whatever tension is happening, it may or may not be dramatic, or it may be that you, uh, your character is not necessarily the focus of the setback one way or the other, right? Yes. So our, our young six-year-old in this example has Fred Williamson syndrome, and Fred Williamson the action movie star from the 70s, who's been a lot of black exploitation movies, famously never wanted his character to ever lose a fight. And so that takes a lot of story beats away from <laughs> the uh, uh, would-be uh, storyteller. And uh, as Ken suggests, uh, dramatic tension is not what uh, young Monsieur Doblemann is looking for here. And so uh, what you want to do is, I, I think... Uh, just let him keep 
winning until I assume that if it's it's a I assume this is a a one on one sort of situation. Um, if not, you've got a weird thing where you're trying to play a regular game with ups and downs with everybody else, and then uh, let the the kid run amok. But basically, I think all six year olds have Fred Williamson syndrome. Basically, you know, he just wants to win and win and win, and so really, I think. Uh, you you know need to get to the age of reason before he's going to get bored probably with winning all the time. Uh, I guess what you could also do is he wins all the time, but he's got uh, allies and people he's uh, trying to rescue and save, and uh, they do the dumb things and they make the mistakes and they get into trouble, and so that creates an emotional downbeat. But it's not that his character has failed but other characters around him have made wrong choices or uh, have not been as skillful. So that uh, still enables uh, him to feel like super-duper ubermensch, but there is still uh, stuff to worry about and stuff that he wants to uh, make sure doesn't happen. Uh, You would think that uh, someone would get bored winning constantly, but again, this someone is a six-year-old. I think that one of the other things that you can do uh, I think that the, 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 the sidekick or the person you're rescuing or, or whatever who gets into trouble is a clavin. Obviously, uh, they made Jimmy Olsen comic books for decades on this basic formula. One of the things you can do with a six year old, especially, and in terms of bringing them in and out of other games with other people is there's no reason you can't have another game with other people who are staying up later than a six year old one hopes. The six year old plays Superman until he gets tired and goes to bed and then you're, yeah, I mean, he's supermaned you two thirds of the way through the dungeon, but now you're still in the dungeon and you can walk back through that, you know, um, a chain of devastation that you left, but the answer is going forward. So that might be a way to combine is that if the characters need him, they hit the signal watch, Superman shows up and smashes up the Griffins or the, or the Knolls or the vampires or whatever they are. And then back over the other thing in terms of the mechanical question, how do I, uh, avoid dice rolling. I think that with a, with, with, with a system like that, you have a uh, resource, uh, pool, uh, and you spend a point and have a victory or you, uh, he can, he can maybe do some resource management. Does he want to use, and I'm going to stick with Superman here because that's the classic, but does he want to use his heat vision or his super breath or his punching or his speed or his invulnerability? Which of the many different ways to win a fight does he want to win this time? That adds tactical complexity and that maybe gets him to the point of maybe he'll even recognize that, oh, this monster, uh, because he's made of mirrors, my heat vision bounces off of him, but I can still smash him with my fist or whatever. And so that maybe gets him into the, uh, at least looking for a tactical or dramatically satisfying uh, way to have a fight. Right. And you could uh, also jury rig the dice system so that the results are not success and failure uh, or uh, perhaps fumble success, failure, critical success, but skin of the teeth success, good solid success, crazy success. So he still gets to roll the dice, but the question is not whether he's going to succeed or fail. Of course he's going to uh, succeed. He's super Fred Williamson. Uh, But uh, how awesomely does he succeed so that you can introduce a note of suspense even while uh, still uh, letting him win? So it's like uh, you know, the knoll gives you a really hard time and you roll down the hill and you get all muddy and scraped, but finally you uh, punch him out 
uh, versus you uh, have a long fight with the knoll and finally you uh, you defeat him to you swat the knoll with the back of your hand and he flies backwards and hits the tree unconscious um, and uh, those could all, those are all different flavors of success so the uh, kid doesn't feel uh, sort of thwarted or, or or hurt or you know suffering some sort of uh, ego damage but still there's gradations within that. Now, uh, I believe this is a three-part question, and if you wonder uh, how to get a three-part question, uh, donate munificently. Uh, Ken, what's the second part of uh, the question here? Rainier asks Ken and Robin further, and as a player, how do I deal with and possibly unpack my power gaming lusts, especially since I rarely get to play? Um, well, uh, you may have put your thumb on the answer right there. I think that as a player, you need to... I mean, a player with other people who's the only power gamer at the table is going to wind up, uh, in a, in a bad situation, especially if the GM is indeed trying to introduce, uh, genuine setbacks for the rest of the party. Um, what you need to do is sort of husband, not just your resources as a character, but your resources as a player. And so you need to mentally think, all right, I'm waiting for the moment at which I destroy and you can be like sort of, you know, uh, Batman standing in the background waiting for the fight to develop before he, he puts on the finishing blow. And if the game system allows you to hoard resources in that way to save your daily power or to, or to, or to hoard up points, do that thing and then explode in a flurry of briefly satisfying murderous frenzy. This is generally how uh, I think psychologically we deal with, with, uh, general moments of, um, uh, uh, you know, having to deal with a society that does not accept that we're all always right. You wait until such time as it has to, and then you're always right. And then you go back into the sort of, uh, quiescent mode where you're building your power for the next confrontation. Another thing that you can do is you have to talk to your GM, just like anything else. If you're not getting enough, uh, great fights out of the game, if you feel like you've built your character and obviously build your character so that you justify your power gaming self, um, say to the GM, Hey, I don't think that we've fought enough knolls. And here I am with my axe of knoll smiting and the GM may or may not toss some knolls in. That's another way to do it is, is to sort of communicate with the, with the person running the game. Uh, if you rarely get to play, another thing is find a group that is also power gamers. Maybe, um, maybe get a more patient 13 year old to run the two of you through a dungeon. I think that might be fun. <laughs> so Robin's laws of good game mastering breaks, uh, these impulses down into, uh, three, uh, related streams. There's the, uh, it identifies the power gamer as the person who's very, very interested in the special abilities and the crunchy bits and the, the character optimization side of things and getting the most bang, uh, for your uh, point system or whatever way that the, whatever the rules engine does to, uh, parcel out how many powers and cool things that you can get. Uh, then there's the butt kicker and that's someone who just enjoys, uh, winning fights in particular and doesn't necessarily uh those two things might go together or they might not that that character that player uh, about half the time at least just wants to have a very simple character that they show up and uh wreak a little uh vicarious havoc with and then the third pillar there is the tactician and that's the person who i associate with never wanting to suffer a setback and that's the player who wants to engineer situations uh, ideally, to always have an anticlimactic uh, solution to every problem that uh, works perfectly and uh, exposes you to the minimum of risk for the uh, maximum of uh, winnage. And so you might want to look at where 
on the spectrum, you fall there. And also, are you uh, Green Lantern, Superman or Batman? Right. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, look around at the rest of the Justice League at the table at all the other players. And uh, often there's sort of an oppositional tension between people on this spectrum and the more storytelling side of things, which, you, you know, back in the day is that uh, silly uh, role player versus role player dichotomy. Um, the, but look at, well, how can I, what can I do that is, you know, meets my Jones, but is still fun for everybody else? So if you're a character optimizer and you notice that uh, the other players need uh, help um, making their characters as badass as the system assumes they're going to be at the level they're at, uh, volunteer to do their homework for them. Uh, if you're a tactician, accept that some of your plans are going to go off splendidly, but that everyone is at, around the table is actually going to be uh, bored if every single victory is a sudden anticlimactic win where nothing was put at risk. So, uh, and, you know, if you're a buck kicker, that's the simplest thing is everybody needs the guy who goes up and uh, takes all the hit points worth of damage and deals out all the hit points of damage when the nulls come in. So uh, think of yourself as uh, not just how you're going to get what you want out of the game, but how you are going to do that while making sure that everybody else is having a, a good time as well. And I believe there's a, a like most three-part questions, Ken, this has a third part. It does have a third part. And unlike... Uh, the third part of The Godfather, it's actually still dramatically interesting. Yes. So, Sophia Coppola is not miscast. No, in this, no. Uh, uh, this is not uh, a victim of Winona Ryder pulling out of the uh, question at the last minute. She's still here. Rainier continues, and when my son does run a game, he puts my hero slash omnipotent god in jail and keeps him there, <laughs> which um, <laughs> shows that uh, perhaps um, uh, we have a bit of projection going on. Uh, not that I, not not that I'm going to child psychologize in the guise of game advice. That would be ridiculous. Um, I think that uh, the way to handle that specifically is to make sure that uh, at the beginning of the game, when you're building your character, you have something that provides you with a small number of clear get out of jails, and that can be, you know, you've, your character has got two super lock picks, or he's got, you know. Uh, his gauntlet of, of power has two charges or whatever it is so that he can have the fun of putting you in jail. Uh, right. Uh, you should stay in jail for at least a little bit because that builds dramatic tension for your eventual get out. And then you smash out of jail and then you've, uh, provided both satisfying emotional beats, both the story beat of, uh, oh no, Superman is in jail. There's kryptonite in the bars. What do we do? And it's like, aha, Superman uses his super breath to blow the bars out of the window and then flies out the window. And so uh, work within the fiction, come up with a solution. If you can't outthink a six-year-old, this may be a different question, but play into the story, but make sure that the jailer, uh, the GM knows that your character has get out of jail options that perhaps um, uh, do not exist for every single person in the game world. Uh, well, I, as a childless game designer, I'm going to uh, venture into child psychology, and uh, two ways you could get around this would be, uh, first of all, to uh, bore your cruel six-year-old GM into submission. So you're in, in prison, so it's like, okay, do-do-do-do-do, I'm just sitting in jail, do-do-do, and, you know, he's got a six-year-old attention span, so... Uh, then you'll have something worse happen to you, and then maybe you can try and leverage that. And that can maybe create the uh, lesson that uh, being down all the time 
uh, is just as boring for both parties as being up all the time is. Um, and another way to do that is to invite him to empathy and say, oh, well, I'm a character stuck here and you've described this situation. What would your character do in this situation? And so then you're, uh, you know, flipping on the, the empathy switch. And uh, I'm, I realize it's a six-year-old six boy we're dealing with here, but there might <laughs> so, be an empathy switch. So, so keep flipping. <laughs> See what yeah. happens. And so uh, sort of enlist him in uh, getting him out. Because, you know, traditionally as a GM, uh, if you've put somebody in jail without figuring out at least one way for them to get out and also being prepared to let them figure other ways out, you've painted yourself in a corner. And uh, if you can sort of uh, gently bring him to that realization as a super young GM, uh, I think you'll be doing a favor that will uh, stand him in good stead later. And I think uh, all three parts are now answered and we can move on to our next segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The hissing of the uh, vegetables in the uh, sauté pan, the bubbling of the stockpot, tell us that we've once again entered that most delicious and savory of uh, Ken and Robin podcast settlements, and that would be the Food Hut. And this week, I thought that we would uh, talk a little bit about uh, not uh, the food itself necessarily, but uh, how we experience food uh, scientifically. What is going on? Uh, on a biochemical level, uh, when you enjoy food. It's actually quite a uh, crazy and uh, wild set of facts, Ken. Do you have a favorite 
science of tasting and eating fact? I, I think my favorite fact, which is not actually a favorite fact at all, is sort of um, uh, weird and uh, strange when you think about it, is uh, that taste and smell obviously go super much together, which means that if you, you know, can't smell something, your sense of taste is is measurably dulled. The interesting thing about smell is that it's actually the same as taste, that it is the interaction of physical molecules of something with the uh, receptors, the nerve receptors in your nose. So the fact that we've got sort of, uh, if you will, depth perception of taste, which you'd think would be one of the odder things, right? If you've got one eye, it's dimensionally flat compared to two eyes. If you don't have your, your nose working, your food is dimensionally flat compared to with a mouth and nose. So the fact that we taste in stereo, as you think about it, it sort of makes less and less sense. It's super unintuitive what's going on when you eat. Because yeah. uh, now that's a fact that, uh, that I thought I knew well. Because, of course, we've all experienced uh, having a cold, cold and yeah. being unable to taste things. But I always just assumed that that meant, oh, well, you're not smelling the food with your nose, so it doesn't quite register. But in fact... There is n nose smell and mouth smell, and that uh, you are not smelling with your mouth, but the molecules, the flavor volatiles, they're called, that are released uh, when you uh, chew and your saliva gets at the food, uh, they rise up through your palate into your nose, and you have a quite different response to them there than you do uh, when you're uh, smelling the... So it's the difference between smelling the bouquet of the wine when you're swirling it around in the glass, and then those flavor volatiles, the molecules, all the complex uh, flavors that you associate uh, with an interesting glass of wine are all rising up through the roof of your mouth, through the palate, into your sinuses, and that's where your brain processes them as complex tastes. And it's uh, not where you, you you associate that sensation with your tongue, but really a ton of the complex information is actually happening in your nose because your tongue is tuned, uh, and there, there's an asterisk here, but uh, mostly as far as scientists think now, your tongue itself tastes uh, five flavors only. Your tongue is responsible, your taste buds are responsible for just the super basic sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and the uh, most mysterious one of all, the one that we have to get a Japanese loan word for, and that's umami. Ken, you've talked about umami on the show before, so take a crack at describing this indescribable thing. <laughs> um, umami is the fundamental flavor component that is, um, uh, I guess what you might say is that it is the taste of depth of taste. Uh, it's sort of, it's, it's like the Z axis. It's hard to see on most maps, but it adds, um, it, it's a flavor that goes deeper and provides what you might think of as the fundamental flavor of savoriness, right? That right, it or is brothiness or, 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 uh, sort of or, meatiness. or meatiness. I think it, the, you know, like many things, it can best be defined by example. And if you are, if you've got a portobello mushroom handy, uh, cook it up and then bite into it. And that is one of the more umami things you can put in your mouth. Uh, and then you're like, okay, all the things in that mushroom that are not, um, uh, the tiny bit of sweetness and the tiny bit of saltiness are umami. 
because uh, again, you can say, well, what is sour? Well, eat a lime. That's what sour is. Uh, what is sweetness? Eat sugar. That's what sweetness is. What is bitterness? Eat, um, uh, you know, electoral defeat. That's what bitter- bitterness is. <laughs> but, um, but umami is or, or I kale. Think, very much. And one leads to the other. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or kale. <laughs> oh, if only kale led to electoral defeat from your mouth to God's ears, Robin. Um, a lot of people say that uh, the fundamental of umami is soy, um, and, but I think that for most people, the main flavor of soy that they think of is soy sauce, which is salty. And uh, so you get umami and salty confused a little bit, which can lead you, A, to oversalt your food, although salt, in addition to being salty, does deepen flavors, so there may be an umami component to it. But soybeans, for example, when you eat an edamame or you eat a, a soybean uh, in some other context, tofu... Uh, it's usually a lighter, it's less umami-y, uh, and so it's harder to exactly pin it down with your tongue than if you eat something that's super umami, like a portobello mushroom. Right, and the sort of chemical version of that, the way that, you know, a shaker of salt is a shaker of salt, and your tongue has receptors specifically for salt, the uh, umami equivalent of that is glutamate. So monosodium glutamate that uh, in the 80s a lot of people decided uh, was bad for them and uh, caused headaches, but which there has never been a scientific test that has established any such harm, is umami in its pure sort of uh, chemical form. Um, and remember, we just found out, and by we, I mean, you know, science, as opposed to people have been eating frickin', you know, mushrooms forever, but they, they only described umami in Japan in 1908, and it was another, you know, uh, 50 or 60 years before flavor science by and large said, yeah, I guess umami counts. It's not, uh, you, you can think of the primary taste as like the primary colors where there's a, there's a wavelength, uh, question that tells you eventually, yes, it's going to be red, blue, yellow are your primary colors and everything else is a mix, but we don't have wavelengths for food. We have, uh, sort of comparisons to base compounds. So, um, uh, you can tell something is sour based on a pH you can tell sweetness based on the the likeness or unlikeness to pure sucrose, and salt obviously is is a chemical compound. But there's not a chemical compound for umami, despite obviously the existence of glutamates. So if you are in Vietnam, for example, a cook in Vietnam uh, or or India or many other South, South Asian cuisines, you will understand that this is all uh, bourgeois, and there is also hotness. The pungency is a fundamental taste quality, the ability, the, what you get from eating hot peppers and that you have to balance six flavors at the table and that one of them is, uh, is, is rancidity is one of the basic six flavors in, uh, Vietnamese cuisine. And the rancidity is not you have to eat rotten food, but you have to eat food like fish sauce that has a quality that we would define as rancid, except it's super tasty. Right. It's, it's fermented. And and so the the term right. rancidity is sort of uh, misleading because there's all sorts of things that we uh, think are delicious that we eat that we eat after they decomposed a little rather than rancid, which makes mm-hmm. you think that it's gone off and has become unhealthy. For yeah, you. It, it probably sounds vastly better in Vietnamese. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there's controversy over there's maybe another twenty different compounds that some uh, taste scientists think possibly should count as. Uh, being among the, the basic tastes. And the, the reason that uh, hotness does not get onto the list right away is that it is sort of a generalized sensation uh, throughout your mouth rather than something that appears to be unlocked by particular taste buds. By a taste bud. Um, another thing yeah. to know is that the 
uh, diagram you may have seen as a kid of where the different tastes are located on the tongue is uh, not a hard and fast uh, tongue rule, as it were, but rather that is where those tastes or receptors are more concentrated. And that also gets us into the idea that people's tastes uh, differ, that there are uh, people who are tolerant tasters who uh, can uh, eat just about anything, no matter, and uh, uh, there's this sort of your uh, regular taster in the middle, and then there's uh, what is sometimes called a, a super taster. The food scientist Barb uh, Stuckey, uh, who wrote a book called Taste, from which a lot of these facts are gleaned, and is really well worth checking out if you're interested more in this topic, prefers the term hypertaster, because supertaster uh, sort of implies that you are really super talented at picking out all these different subtle uh, flavors, but of course we know those are uh, th that's a nose thing, not a tongue thing, and that if you're a hypertaster, it means you're actually uncomfortably sensitive to a lot of foods, and particularly to uh, bitterness. I mean, just like it, uh, some fairly large number of people are colorblind to some extent, a lot of people have different reactions. Uh, the enzymes work in, work differently in their mouth. So like 20% of people, when they eat cilantro, they taste soap. And it's not that they're wrong. Um, it's just that 20% of them have different mouth chemistry. And uh, these are people who are never going to enjoy Mexican food as much as those of us who, thank goodness, don't have that in their mouths, but it's, it, you know, it, everyone's got a, a much more individual batch of taste reactions than they do of even sight reactions. And the degree to which your taste reaction changes over time and with age is broadly sort of understood, I guess. I think we have the notion that, you know, children have very simple, straightforward taste receptors, bad, good. And and that, I guess, is if you're like a baby, you know, pithecanthropus wandering around on the savanna and mom pithecanthropus is not there, you won't poison yourself while no one is looking. Yes, yeah, so you have a high sort of built-in suspicion of, of new foods. Of new foods. And then as you get older, that sort of wears away. You know, you know, your baby taste buds fall out and your grown-up taste buds come in, although I have no idea if that's, that's how, it how it works. But you have... It's just like more of them are turning on. So uh, you start off, right, your yeah. uh, kids are really into uh, salt and sugar. Um, and then there's a point in uh, sort of, uh, I think sort of like from 7 to 12, you quite often suddenly uh, really love sour stuff when before you didn't like it at all. So that's why you see all of those sour candies uh, marketed to uh, kids of that age, because all of a sudden you go on a, a sour kick. And the tolerance for bitterness is the, if it comes in at all, is the one that comes in much later because uh, bitter plants tend to be either medicinal or poisonous, and in neither case do you want to be um, munching on them unguardedly. And there are also uh, what you call, you know, acquired tastes. And in those cases, you have a system where, in some senses, you just don't, you're not familiar with it, and you don't know what to make of it. Like, you see a piece of art for the first time, and you're like, I don't get Jackson Pollock. And then the more you look at Jackson Pollock, you're like, okay, I, I get what he's going for. I see sort of his, his larger aesthetic point, and you have acquired that artistic taste, but that works also physically. Like if you've never had uh, kiwi fruit, the first time you eat it, you're like, what is this weird, crazy, sweet thing? And then eventually you acquire a taste for it. And it's like, okay, now I know what I could do with it. I have it sort of mapped into my experiences, but other times you get a taste for it because your 
molecule, that, that individual taste bud or that complex of taste buds that are woken up by that thing are more awake now. And so they get a hankering for it in the same way that if you go out and you start running, your body starts to expect that runners, uh, the, the, all the chemical releases that happen when you're running. And so it starts saying, why isn't that happening? And it develops literally a taste for running, although it's not a taste. It's a whatever happens uh, to the rest of your body when it wants specific enzymes. But in your mouth, you'll get a sense that your mouth will want specific enzymes. And that is, you know, you, you suddenly, you know, you've never thought about pecans. Uh, you eat a couple of pecans. You think that there's, uh, dry and soapy and weird. And then all of a sudden you can't have too many pecans. And that happened, you know, and that happens over time. And it's just a matter of sort of what you run into. And if you have a, a lucky or a, or a positive, uh, roll of the dice as to what your mouth enzymes will be like in your mouth and your specific taste bud map. So for me, blueberries, you know, were for a long time, I could take them or leave them. And then they really came on. And now I have a super acquired taste for blueberries. Uh, another, uh, fascinating uh, food fact is uh, you may have I don't think it can be more fascinating than my blueberry story. An, another, I didn't say more interesting. Uh, but this is right, about uh, fat and ice cream, so uh, this may be of interest. Ah, I, I, you you may have heard uh, that uh, fat makes food taste better, that it locks in flavors, and the uh, reason that it does that is that fat coats your tongue, and it causes all of the other uh, both taste and flavor elements, where taste is your tongue and flavor is your uh, your mouth smell, um, onto your tongue for longer, so that you are it's it binds them to your taste apparatus and therefore makes those flavors seem uh, richer. And uh, do you have a, a final bit of uh, science food trivia before I lay uh, my bit of taste science uh, trivia on you as our final one? Well, I have the sort of obvious ob- observation that in addition to all of these other things, the degree or uh, the degree of heat in the food activates or deactivates different flavor compounds. Yeah. And some chemical bonds are actually physically broken by heat, which is why uh, when you grill a hamburger or grill a steak, it tastes a million times better than if you just eat that steak, you know, straight up raw, even though beef carpaccio is delicious, uh, super, super delicious, uh, and beef and uh, steak tartare is delicious. If you add that grilledness to it, you have changed the peptide in such ways to make it combine differently with your tongue. And uh, similarly, you know, you can just think of things that are better cold like milk and better hot like tea, um, uh, but or maybe not tea, depending, you know, my, my apologies to everyone in the South, but the, the flavors d- definitively change with heat because the chemical composition, as you might imagine from chemistry class, changes with heat. Um, aging does the same thing. So the reason a, a really aged cheese tastes uh, so much uh, richer and sharper is that the uh, DNA strands in the cheese are breaking down over time. And that's what the, uh, I imagine... Uh, would also be the same process that is involved in aging a steak is that it's uh, the the long uh, flavor proteins are breaking down into a form that is uh, because, you know, basically they have more surface area. So they seem richer to you when they eat them. And they're more complex because it's not all the same yeah. protein, right? That they're broken off, not at the same length the whole time, but in a complex of length. Um, and so my, my final uh, crazy uh, taste fact uh, for this segment is that, uh, you uh, may have been told as a, as a kid uh, that you uh, shouldn't be worried about sticking your food together on the plate. Uh, you can probably divide people into 
allows food to touch and do not allow food to touch. Kids are often really concerned about that because, of course, they're super guarded about food in general and they might be happy with a, a potato and they might be happy with a tomato, but they don't want the two of them getting into each other. Um, and so parents would often say, well, you don't have taste buds in your stomach. Um, it's all going to be that one thing in your stomach. Well, it turns out you do have taste buds in your stomach and you have a few taste buds in your throat as well. And you don't experience those as flavor. You're completely unconscious of them. But this is the body's scanning mechanism to identify what foods you are uh, putting in your digestive system and therefore what enzymes it needs to release in order to go uh, deal with them. So it has sort of a, you have uh, taste buds in your stomach as basically your tricorder for your digestive system. And uh, on that note, it's time to uh, go to a completely different hut after this exciting commercial message. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In volume two of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The sight of the castle lowering on the hill, the blood-red lettering dripping down the screen, and the thundering crescendo of a James Bernard score tell us we have entered a cinematic portion of the Horror Hut. And here in the Horror Hut, I, of course, have been marinating in Dracula for the last, well, for years and years and years, but super marinating, super tasting for the last month or so. And so, Robin, I believe you have a specifically Draculated theme for us today. Right. I was trying to come up with a way to uh, reference the thrill of Dracula, which is the book of essays on different Dracula films that you're working on in a way that uh, isn't just discussing the book, because we should do that uh, the later on when people can actually pick it up. But I thought uh, since it's on your mind, we would take advantage of that. And I recently watched uh, one of the later Hammer Draculas with Christopher Lee. I'm not sure it's in uh, one of the ones you picked for the book, but it's 
Dracula A.D. 1972. It's in the book, but it was not in the 30 Days of Dractober. So, uh, I've recently seen it. I assume you've uh, either recently seen it or had it uh, etched in your consciousness. Yes. And so it's basically a very slimmed down, uh, compact little uh, Dracula movie that has both Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in it and uh, uh, does what it sets to do uh, to do and gets out. Uh, but the twist is that uh, this time, uh, when Dracula is revealed to have survived his latest adventures uh, uh, for the fifth or sixth or seventh time or whatever it is, he is resurrected in uh, the then present day of 1972. And uh, instead of a, a Harker figure, there's, uh, there's a Van Helsing's a granddaughter figure, as well as uh, Peter Cushing playing a, a descendant of the original uh, Van Helsing. Uh, I think there's some weirdness with the how old he could possibly be compared to Van Helsing being his grandfather, but we'll we'll set that aside. And so I thought a way that we could have fun uh, sort of playing in the realm of Dracula movies is to imagine a Cartus film production of uh, Dracula A.D. 2017. Uh, 2015, it's too late. Uh, we don't have enough time to uh, uh, get this movie uh, released in theaters by the end of the year. In fact, uh, you know, if we're shooting it next year, really we're going to have to put on the date for uh, the year after that when it's most likely to be released. So I thought we would uh, kick around our uh, imaginary ideas for what you would do if you were given the task of, uh, first of all, pitching the core concept of what that would be and also uh, casting the film. So uh, do you want to start it with casting or do you want to start it by figuring out what the 2017-ness of it would be? Because the 72 version picks one thing about that era that works with Dracula and basically hooks it into uh, the uh, Manson side of the hippie movement. And so they refer to cult murders, and that's the thing that uh, makes it uh, contemporary, at least in terms of the, the dialogue spoken by the characters, even though it's a pretty straightforward uh, Dracula movie. Um, I think that unless you have a killer Dracula to cast... We should start by doing the uh, the the plot and the and the pit the twenty seventeen ness of it. I do have a killer Dracula, but we can wait. Yes, um, and I th I think we should mention in this uh, in this context that of course the other let us not say great because neither of them are great, but the other better than they are given credit for uh, Dracula surviving into the present day or Dracula resurrected in the present day movie is Dra is Dracula two thousand the Wes Craven film or Wes Craven produced film, but it's a Wes Craven film. Um, with, which had Gerard Butler as Dracula and a Van Helsing who had kept himself immortal by injecting bits of Dra uh, uh, Dracula blood into him so that he could always be alert in case Dracula got out of this super prison that he had constructed for him, this crazily combo high-tech, low-tech uh, prison for Dracula. And he has leeches on Dracula that um, suck the vampire blood out. He goes and he removes the leeches and since it's a tiny little leech, it can't fight Van Helsing very effectively. So he, <laughs> he drains the blood out of the leech, and then he tosses the leech into the fire, where it explodes with this awesome vampire explosive fire. And then he lives down into the present day, uh, when, of course, everything goes wrong. Is that in the book as well? Dracula 2000? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dracula 2000 is in the book. I mean, most things are in the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it because turns out. You, you scrape all the way down to Billy the Kid versus Dracula, so. Yes, well, there's, the Dracula 3000 is even farther below Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid versus Dracula is unforgiven compared to Dracula 3000. Anyhow, uh, not to turn it into the book all of a sudden, but that story is 
in a way about um the sort of things that uh, they they think of as the as the modern era which is to say uh the kids these days with the licentiousness but also um ambition like the the sense of being abandoned and bereft in the world right everyone in the car- in the in the in the movie is in some major sense alone right no one has got a family structure it's not like Stoker's Dracula where everyone is knitted in this really tight social world the Dracula of Dracula 2000 is all atomized even of course Van Helsing because he's lived down into the modern day well past his time is also alone in the world and so that is sort of what that movie is about it's about anomie and and alienation and so when we go into our 2017 is I mean what are the aspects of the future that we want to talk about do we want to talk about uh, terrorism and go back to the old Dracula as the Eastern question come back to haunt us that Stoker was putting him in where Dracula represented among other things, uh, Russian imperialism, or do we want to, uh, and maybe make it a terroristy Dracula movie? I think that's maybe Dracula 2008. That's maybe Dracula 2008. All uh, right. Um, uh, unborn identity, something like that. And, and the question is picking something that is, uh, dr- rich in Dracula metaphor, uh, yet not so completely overdetermined that it seems like a, a dumb cliche. And so, uh, I think Although again, nineteen seventy Dracula nineteen seventy two has has its share of dumb cliches. Sure, of course. But the the, the idea that, oh, we're drawing a parallel to the Mansons yeah. actually kind of makes sense and is mm-hmm. of its era, and when you see it now, it's uh something that's cool about it. And maybe that's part of it too, is that it might maybe it seemed too obvious at the time, but now in with the distance of time, maybe it seems like a more interesting choice. Um I think maybe uh uh surveillance uh, is still, I think, prob- is you know, it's part of the uh, the global war on terror, but it's something that's growing. Or sort of our drift into authoritarian democracy. Uh, so uh, something that might have, uh, you know, Dracula uh, watching us. So it might be uh, all about the people who uh, the original Van Helsing has set up to create this uh, surveillance network in order to study. Uh, signs that Dracula might be coming back and then how they uh, react when they do start to uh, see those signs or, uh, you know, the very fact that they spend all of their time uh, watching, watching, watching creates the paranoia that brings him back. I guess that's kind of an esoterist sort of idea. Is there something else that... uh... If we're looking at Dracula and surveillance, I think the fun thing, obviously, is that we start off with um, our heroes are CIA or MI6 or whoever, and they've got their surveillance net and they're watching for problems. They don't know that they're watching for Dracula. And then suddenly stuff starts happening that there's, that the drones don't see, right? The drones flying overhead and still these people still got killed. And there's weird, there's like a weird blank spot where they're not getting anything. And so they send our Harker in to find out what's going on. And he's not going to invite this thing into the present, but he's going to make contact with it. He's going in and, and looking at it. And then as the movie goes forward, we have Dracula using the old low-tech surveillance where every rat and every moth and every uh, raven and every owl and every wolf and uh, uh, all the meaner things are his eyes. And how Dracula is the ultimate surveillance uh, warrior, right? That he's got total awareness of all battlefields. And that's one of his sort of Dracula superpowers. And we really play that up in the modern day. We have a lot of POV shots from owls and rats right. and stuff. And, and then uh, we have, our heroes have to find, you know, the, 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 the world's greatest uh, expert 
at, um, and, you know, depending on, ha- on what audience we're going for, maybe in this one, our Van Helsing is a guy who, you know, has been, uh, sort of a, a, uh, a heroified version of, of Snowden or Assange, someone who's been, uh, dropping off the, the, the grid and hiding out from the surveillance state. And only that guy is able to maybe also dodge Dracula surveillance, or maybe what we have is, uh, in more keeping with Stoker, we have the ultimate expression of the surveillance state. We have a, a masterful, um, uh, drone operator who's going to go after Dracula and, uh, has to step and his, uh, arc is that he has to leave the trailer in Nevada and go into the field and use his skills at noticing things physically in the real world for the first time. Right. Because Dracula is using his ability to, his mist, his ability to, to mesmerize people. And basically he's taking over the, the drone targeting program and prompting the uh, people firing the drones to start firing at the things that he wants fired at. And so that's the sort of uh, inciting incident that sort of turns this from, uh, you know, a low boiling paranoia story uh, into, you know, how do you uh, fight uh, somebody who uh, you've built up this incredible technical apparatus and uh, you think you know what's going on, but really what you're seeing is something that he has created in your mind. And, and maybe the way that he d- did that is when Harker comes back from Romania or wherever Dracula was, uh, we, and we can put it wherever we want, um, you know, Syria maybe, Harker comes back and he's, you know, in a bad way, so he gets put in a military hospital and he gets debriefed by uh, top men who are like, you know, no one can see Harker but us. But of course, he's a, con- uh, he's a conveyor now of Draculaness. And so he, he, we have a little zombie and a little, um, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of fear of terrorist recruitment where when you're in a room alone with Harker, what comes out is another Renfield, another guy who follows Dracula. And so Harker becomes sort of patient zero of this. And it's our Van Helsing character who says, well, this guy is a channel to Dracula. I need him. And so they break him out. And then it's the war over Harker. And maybe we can conflate Harker and Mina Harker in this one. So that the, the, the character who's sent out to find out what's going on with the probes is a, is a, is a female, uh, operative. Yeah. And when she comes have a, back, a, if we, if we're doing this in 2017, we want to have a major female character. Yes. And, and so the, it can be Dracula and Van Helsing warring over, uh, Mina's soul, just like in the novel, but in this one, if we get Mina back, then she becomes a complete badass uh, special operative. And getting Mina back is what this sort of desk warrior needs if he's going to actually stake Dracula. And maybe we've got a Homewood and a Quincy who are also sort of special forces guys, but are basically along to, to carry the, the bag of stakes for everybody else, just like in the novel. Right. And it gives the, the actress playing uh, Harker a, a juicy role because she's torn in two directions and there's mm-hmm. a... Uh, you know, that she's part Renfield, part badass, and she's got to expel the alien consciousness from her in order to, but that's also what she can use to uh, track Dracula, right? She, mm-hmm. the problem Just is like you can't track him, but if you can fool Dracula into thinking you're still enthralled to him, uh, so you, you know, uh, Quincy and this guy and, uh, Homewood can be the people who devise the, uh, sort of scanning, uh, the blocking technology that, uh, allows her to remain her long enough as she goes into the uh, heart of uh, of darkness, or I guess Van Helsing could be the guy. In that case, uh, you know, Van Helsing may be the, uh, you know, he's got a magical amulet, and it's the thing that uh, allows all this technological stuff to be uh, defeated. So, and, and you could you can you can break it up a little bit. Like you could have one character be the the magic the magician or the occultist who they bring in, 
And you'd think, well, that's the Van Helsing character, but you know, you name him Homewood and you realize that he's brought in as a representative of, of old, of, of old money, money that exists before, uh, any of this world and in the way that Homewood represents the good aristocracy. So, um, just like at the end of every, uh, national security movie where the rogue, uh, CIA guy is led away by the other CIA guys who are like, well, thank God you showed up identical white guy. Um, <laughs> Uh, we can have Homewood be sort of a, um, uh, a, a banker figure, uh, uh, you know, a representative of the old East Coast establishment. And he's got, you know, access to magic because he goes way back to, you know, Cotton Mather or something. Uh, similarly, Quincy, who in the novel had had previous experience with vampire bats, can be the guy who's developing these countermeasures that he knows. He's seen something like this, he or, or she, who's been out there in the, um, uh, Quincy Morris was actually, uh, cross cast in the, in the stage play it was a female part. Um, uh, goes out and, uh, you know, has develops, like you say, the, the countermeasures or the, or the screen or something like that because of her previous experience in Afghanistan where she saw something like this. Um, so far are Jennifer Harker, uh, I'm thinking Emily Blunt. Sure. She proved she can be badass in, um, uh, uh, uh end of tomorrow or whatever that, uh, uh, a science fiction movie was where she was uh, killing Tom Cruise all the time. Van Helsing. We want uh, a, a hint of an, an accent. Uh, and uh, so I think Moss Mickelson uh, oh, would make a great it, Van Helsing. Yeah. It, it, I think that the notion of him playing a, a straight up hero is kind of a, a good thing. But anyone who looks at him knows why he's been put in the trailer and is not allowed to look at the important people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking uh, Michael Fassbender for Dracula. Uh, is Fassbender tall enough? All these actors now are so tiny, and you want a tall Dracula. You just tilt the camera. There's, there's, the, the, <laughs> tilt the all, camera. All actors are always tiny because they have disproportionately large heads, which <laughs> makes them seem charismatic on screen. Christopher Lee was ginormous. He right. was like 6'5". Well, we can't all be Christopher Lee. But no, no one can be Christopher Lee. That's the, that's the shame of our modern era. I'm not going to stop and look up how <laughs> tall... Michael Fassbender is, but we can make him. He certainly looks tall in his movie, so we can make him look tall enough. All right, so you're you're saying Fassbender is Dracula? Well, did you have someone else in mind? Well, let's see. Um, I think it might be fun to sort of again with uh with Dracula go back a generation rather than it be you know Fassbender, someone who's 21st century bad news. Um, I think if we could go back to you know someone who was a uh. A sort of a, a big actor of of the uh, of the previous era, someone who's uh, oh, let's see, I should have thought of this before we started recording. <laughs> it's it's almost like I put it in the show notes. It's almost like you put it in the notes. Um, well, while you're uh, contemplating, if Fastbender isn't available, I would also uh, happily accept uh, uh, Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy would also be a, a very intimidating uh, Dracula. Yeah, he might be a good Dracula. He's not terrible as as he, he would not be a terrible Dracula. I would I I think he might be a better one than Fastbender because uh, one of the problems with Fastbender is that in a lot of his parts he's uh, a little over controlled. I think, and so you know maybe uh, Tom Hardy is is got a little he's a little closer to his inner Dracula. I think. Um, let, let, we put a pin in it. If I come up with a better Dracula, we, we can do it. I think that, um, our, uh, our female Quincy, our, our badass, um, you know, a special op who has sort of seen this kind of thing and is ignored, uh, Michelle Rodriguez would be obviously great for it. Although I don't know if she wants to go back into the action world, uh, now, but I think she's sort of the direction that I would go. Um, if you want a, a slightly older actor who is very tall and intimidating, I hear that Liam Neeson has a very particular set of skills. He does have a particular set of undead skills. Um, he would be a good Dracula, and he is tall. 
Um, yeah, let's do, I, I, I'm, I'm on board with Liam Neeson. We can get Liam Neeson. I'm ready to make this Dracula. And also, um, it'll be a, a, a beautiful tip of the hat to Brom to have an Irishman play Dracula. Well, there so you I go. Think the first time ever, unless Patrick Bergen is Irish. So Hollywood, you listen to this podcast, uh, set us up. Yeah. Uh, we'll make it happen. Uh, we'll get working uh, on that. And we can do it, uh, for, uh, you know, what, what, what would we say? Dracula, 80, 1972, that cost, uh. And that cost what probably half a million dollars. I think we could probably do that for, you know, what do you think, fifty million? We have to check how much Liam Neeson and, uh, and that's Lee right. Neeson's going to really hold us up. Mark so yeah, don't don't hold us to it. But oh, uh, Mads Mikkelsen will just take it because he loves the part so much. You know that. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask Moss next time I uh, see right. him. Okay. Uh, so on that note, I think uh, our pitch is completed, and we can move on to our final segments. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. The clacking of chronotons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send our intrepid correspondent back into time to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. But uh, you may have noticed, listeners, that you had to undergo a retinal scan before listening to this segment, which also tells us that it's a co-production with the Tradecraft Hut, and it is one that uh, centers around the uh, controversial career of CIA spymaster James Jesus Angleton, and I take it it is pronounced that way and not James Jesus Angleton? No, it's James Jesus Angleton. You don't often hear people uh, with that name pronounced that way, but he is an exception to many things. So before we go on to your assignment, uh, why don't you, we've mentioned him a bunch of times in different... Although, uh, you know what? I said that, but his mom was Carmen Mercedes Moreno, Oh, so she might have pronounced it Jesus. There you go. So his mom pronounced it Jesus, I'll bet. Um, so we know about his mom, uh, and we have different speculations on how he pronounced his middle name and uh, that's really all you need for angleton i think there you go but for, but for those who need a little bit more ground us in the uh, career of the angleton in our time stream uh the career of angleton in our time stream is that he uh is an oss guy uh he's part of the um 
uh, people running the, uh, the, the, what was called the X2 intercepts, which was the American, uh, half of, of Enigma Ultra, where they grabbed the, um, uh, Nazi, uh, uh, codes or transmissions and decoded them. And he, uh, ran, um, this sort of OSS operation in Italy, kind of by the end of, of the day, since knowing everything tends to put you in charge. He, uh, is, uh, in Italy, he works with Dulles. When Dulles becomes head of the CIA, Dulles brings Angleton along and puts him in charge of, um, counterintelligence. And counterintelligence is the bank of spying that hunts out other people's spies and turns or, uh, worst case scenario, uh, uh, arrests them, but you ideally turn them and have them feeding back information to the bad guys. Uh, without even necessarily knowing that they've been turned, um, which is the best way to do it. Uh, it's what the uh, Nazis did to the British agents in the Low Countries, and then what the British did to all the Nazi agents in England. Uh, so it was a, it's the classic double cross. And Angleton, uh, began, uh, you know, looking for moles in, uh, the CIA very intensively once it was demonstrated that his old buddy, uh, from the war, Kim Philby, was a Soviet spy and that, uh, MI6, as it happened, was riddled with Soviet moles at every level. And he said, well, by God, that's not going to happen to the CIA on my watch. And got, uh, and I'm fairly sure that we've had this, uh, in one context or another, but a defector, uh, named Golitsyn shows up and says, Hey, I know a ton about Soviet, uh, activities and I want to come over. And so they bring this guy Golitsyn in. And Galitzin says, the thing you need to know that's most important is there is a super high-placed mole in the CIA. And there is going to be, uh, once the Soviets know that I'm gone, they are going to start sending other over other guys who are going to contradict my story. And so don't believe them. Believe me, uh, you're looking for a super high-placed mole. And when another uh, defector comes along in another couple of years, Yuri Nosenko, and says... Oh my God. The most important thing is that this Galitzin, he's a double agent. It's a trick. There's no mole. Uh, Angleton believes Galitzin and not Nosenko. He has Nosenko fairly rigorously interrogated to, to break his story. He doesn't break. Uh, but Angleton still doesn't believe, uh, Nosenko. He believes Galitzin and he launches a huge mole hunt throughout the, C- the CIA. Uh, and, and he's looking for an agent whose name or code name has a K in it, who was stationed in Central Europe at some point. And that pretty much means virtually the entire CIA's, uh, operations staff is under suspicion. And it turns out to be really hard to run a spy agency when the head of counterintelligence keeps investigating everybody. Right. And what uh, rough time frame is this uh, period of paranoia? Uh, the Galitzin, uh, uh, defects in, I think, 62? Uh, and then Nosenko defects in 64. And so the, the mole hunt sort of begins in 62. And then it really goes on until 1975, I believe, which is when, uh, Angleton is bounced. And that is a big stretch. That is a big, important stretch of hunting for Soviet spies. Um, so for example, uh, as Angleton is going along looking for spies, he also says, I think that two prime ministers of Canada are Soviet spies and also perhaps an Australian prime minister are Soviet spies and Olaf Palm is a spy and Billy Brandt is a spy and Harold Wilson is a spy. And you can believe or disbelieve Golitsyn over Nosenko. I think that although the CIA would very much like the question to be closed, I don't think the question is super closed. Um, 
I don't know enough about the case. And everyone who writes a book is a, a professional spy. So they're really good at lying and B, um, uh, has an ax to grind. So it, it, we may never know, but I think that it's not as open and shut as, uh, sort of civilian spy histories might make it look. Well, that's but, why Time Incorporated sent you back to find out. But for even sure. saying that, I'm pretty sure that Lester Pearson and um, uh, Willy Brandt were not actually agents of the Soviet Union. Uh, yes. Uh, I did not use a time was. machine for the first part of that. <laughs> right. um, so they've determined that, indeed, uh, the uh, mole hunt was a, a big detriment to something. Uh, and what that something is, we might just uh, find out after you uh, keep... Uh, once you go on your mission, you keep uh, Angleton's paranoia within utile parameters. So you have your uh, your time vodka, you have your time machine. How do you achieve that? Uh, the first thing to do is to go back uh, or forward, depending on exactly which direction it is, to absolutely find out what's the situation with Golitsyn and Nasenko. Which of them is the real guy and which is not? Because if you just have an answer, if you have an incontrovertible answer, then... Angleton, by definition, is only normal paranoid as opposed to extra paranoid because he knows which is right. So what I have to do is I have to go to whoever is running the KGB in the in the early 60s, which I'm not sure who that is uh, right off the top of my head. I guess that's why we have time machines and approach him either at the very tail end of his uh, career when he's uh, in whatever retirement DACA he is and drink with him into uh, confirmation one way or the other of Golitsyn or Nosenko, or uh, go to the Yeltsin Spring. Which is not a spa. No, it's not a spa. It could be a spa, and it should be a spa, frankly. But it's the period where Boris Yeltsin has briefly opened up virtually all of the archives uh, to Western researchers. They didn't open up the actual KGB files. They didn't open up the actual uh, GRU files, but all of the Comintern files, all the Red Army files, and everything in the Soviet Union worked with the KGB or worked with the GRU. And so lots of, you know, copies of memos show up. Weird and of Putin to shut that down. We, it is weird. It's almost as though he, he knew a guy in the file room um, <laughs> <laughs> or knew all the guys in the file room. But there is a brief period where Western researchers can get into the Soviet uh, files and they turned up huge uh, tranches of information about uh, the Soviet spy operations. And so going and, and so unlike the CIA, I would actually have an interest in knowing uh, the truth about Golitsyn and Nasenko. And unlike the CIA, I have a time machine and time vodka. And if Boris Yeltsin is not amenable to drinking into revealing a secret about uh, Nasenko and Golitsyn, then no one is. But I'm sure that if I can't get it out of Boris, I can probably get it out of someone who's in some archive somewhere. So either he would tell you as soon as you put the vodka on the table. That's right. It's like Boris Yeltsin, big fan, long time, first time clank, by the way, what's the deal with Golitsyn? And then, and and then, and and then the fun begins. Okay. So the the answer it turned out was the one that is the requires the most, uh, manipulation of the time stream. So which, which would it have been? Who was right? Uh, well, uh, since the, Conventional historical consensus is that Nosenko was right. Uh, if the answer is that Golitsyn is right, then I go, I bring the evidence of Golitsyn's correctness, not necessarily to Angleton, but to other actors within the CIA. Angleton obviously is operating on the, on the knowledge that Golitsyn is right. Unless you want me to change, uh, Angleton specifically, in which case I can bring him the proof 
that uh, Nasenko is right. Which which would you rather? Do you want to fix Angleton or the rest of the CIA? We started out fixing Angleton, so let's stick with that. Let's fix Angleton. All right. So I bring to him proof that Galitzin is is actually indeed a double agent. That it's a that it's a trick, and that uh, Nasenko's information is correct, which keeps exoteric history pretty much the same. Because among the things that uh, Nasenko said was there was no Soviet connection to. Oh no, I'm wrong. Um, Nasenko said that uh, the the Soviets did have an access, uh, ha- have a, a line in on the Kennedy assassination. So making Nosenko authentic maybe opens up that can of worms. And maybe that's the direction that you can start pointing Angleton is going after the assassination of Kennedy as well as, and, and you know, if there was ever a place for a dogged investigator with access at the highest levels of everything, um, the question then is, at what point do you want that revealed and if you make, um, uh, if you keep Angleton's paranoia in play, in check, but unleash Richard Nixon's, I'm not sure that you're necessarily, um, uh, improving the situation as much as you might be. But by giving, uh, not just Angleton, but the, um, uh, if giving Angleton proof that Galitzin is, is a liar, uh, prevents the mole hunt entirely. And so his, his paranoia is pretty much down then to, uh, rooting out, um, the actual, uh, level of, of KGB infiltration of the West, which again, under Angleton's watch was not what it was after Angleton left. I mean, Eldridge Ames only starts betraying, uh, the country after Angleton has, is not in charge. So. Right. Because a, a mole hunt, even if it's misguided, has a deterrent effect for potential moles. For potential moles. It sure does. So you fixed Angleton. What does our, uh, does our external history look, uh, different at all? Is the, are there big changes from that or what, what, uh, Things that were caused by the mole hunt are no longer caused by the mole hunt to somebody's benefit. The mole hunt um, doesn't have a big tactical effect unless you believe that the mole hunt is why the Soviets won the espionage war, which they absolutely did. Now, I don't believe that the mole hunt is why the Soviets won the espionage war because I look at the CIA after and pre-mole hunt and it's just as incompetent on either side, right? Before the mole hunt, they overthrow Mossadegh. They don't overthrow Castro. They manage to screw up a million things before the mole hunt. After the mole hunt, they're, if anything, even more feckless and self-satisfied. So the Soviets still win the espionage war with or without the mole hunt. The mole hunt is like, you know, um, reversing one battle in a losing war. And what's, what's your metric for saying that they won the espionage war? Well, because they had way more spies operating in America than we had ever in the Soviet Union. They knew, I mean, part of it is we're an open society and they're not. Yeah. But they also had way more access to American uh, intelligence secrets than we ever did. We had no one that was the equivalent of Aldrich Ames. Right. Uh, they had in, a softer the target. Union. Yeah, they, they did have a softer target, although that's a different batch of questions. But 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 th- their uh, penetration of Western Europe, for example, was nearly complete. Uh, it was. It, it doesn't get to the actual level of Willy Brandt, but guys in Willy Brandt's physical office are Soviet moles. It doesn't get to the level of Harold Wilson, but obviously we know that all kinds of members of the British security establishment were Soviet agents. Uh, similar, same thing can be argued about Canada, Australia, all the Western allies, and certainly the even the uh, the non-Anglophone uh, countries are just flooded with Soviet agents. And a lot of that is just you know, quant- as uh, Stalin says, quantity has a quality all its own. We never bothered to have that many agents 
in certainly in our own allied countries. We had and, other things to do. And, um, uh, and it, it was much harder to get them in Eastern Europe and in, um, uh, Russia, although we had a number of pretty highly placed guys in Poland, it turned out. So, and, and that returns us to another tradecraft hut theme, which is that, uh, success in espionage often actually gets you bupkis in the wider <laughs> geopolitical sense because yeah. they won the espionage war, but they uh, did not win the Cold War. Not as it turned out. And, and so the, the, the question of if we fix Angleton, Angleton then stays in, uh, counterintel for a little while longer, but by the seventies, people were being cleared out of the CIA anyway. I mean, Angleton does not cause the church committee, for example, uh, which, which goes in and investigates, uh, why, what are we doing with the CIA and loading cigars? What Seriously? The, what, what is all this stuff? And so Angleton probably would get shuffled out of the CIA right around 1975 with or without, uh, the mole hunt simply because he was a Dulles era veteran and the Dulles guys were already looked at as dinosaurs by the CIA internally. And then the excuse of the church house cleaning would have meant that they get shifted over in the seventies to the new breed with or without um, the mole hunt. So I don't think that we actually do anything except make Angleton's uh, reputation more spotless amongst fair-minded historians of, of intelligence. So possibly this is one of those missions where two things are, are, are possibly true. Either a, this is just an excuse for you to go and drink vodka with Yeltsin. Which is, you know, that's its own mission. Right. Or B, that there's some sort of butterfly effect that Time Incorporated is, is shooting for that we uh, can't obviously see from this uh, from the mission itself. Now, for example, if it turns out, and I am not saying that it turned out, but let's say that it turns out that Olaf Palm was in fact a Soviet agent, right? Um, and I have no belief in that whatsoever. But let's say that it, that that accusation is correct. And because he's not mole hunting in America and angering everyone and driving everyone bananas, he's able to prove definitively that Olaf Palm is a Soviet agent. Something like that. The exposure of one high level Soviet agent would have knock on effects in the propaganda war, obviously, and would probably have strengthened the West's hand during that sort of dodgy middle part of the Cold War, right? The, the, the pre-Reagan era where everyone is like, well, if we just detente enough, it'll be like winning. And maybe that is a thing that Time Incorporated wants to sort of, um, uh, tighten up the Cold War and maybe even shorten it a little bit. Like if you start a Reagan era policy of confrontation in the seventies, maybe they want Gerald Ford to win reelection in 76. And so you wind up with the Cold War ending a little bit early. And so you maybe move the differential between the Cold War and Islamic, uh, fundamentalist rise apart, you know, farther than three years apart, right? We don't have to fund a bunch of crazy militiamen in Afghanistan to knock out the Soviets because it turns out the revelation that Western Europe is, uh, is actually being run by putative Soviet agents causes a, a huge swing to the electoral right in the seventies. And we wind up knocking the Soviets out with good old economic warfare, the way that uh, Reagan eventually did in the late eighties. Or possibly you've got some sort of, you know, there's lots of people, uh, in the, uh, developing world. Uh, they're the ones who really suffered during the cold war, extraordinarily. So in the mm -hmm. case of a lot of regimes that were, uh, enacted and were, uh, you know, killed lots of people and, uh, or, or got to be battlefields. Uh, right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it may, it may well be the, that sort of collateral loss of life that we too often forget when we're discussing the Cold War that is really the object that Time Incorporated is, 
is looking for in trying to shorten the Cold War. Right. Yeah. For example, if you if you shorten the war in um, uh, Angola and uh, Mozambique by you know even five years, you probably save a million people's lives. That is the sort of thing Time Incorporated is looking for on it on its end of uh, quarter reports. Millions of lives. Right. And uh, again, if we've uh, managed to, you know, shorten Afghanistan, then maybe that does the same sort of thing. Uh, well, then, uh, I think now that we're beginning to see more than a butterfly effect, uh, we can say that we have thought this time experiment through and can therefore uh, declare uh, an experiment in this being an episode of a podcast successfully completed. And perhaps next week we will replicate it. So stay tuned. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Celebrate the most umami of all podcasts by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Join such good-tasting patrons as Daniel Callahan. And Jeffrey Tillotson. You mean patrons with good taste, don't you? That too. Is there Ken and Robin-themed merch you'd like to see as part of our upcoming Patreon campaign? Then leave a comment on the blog post for this episode. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.